coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 23rd of April, 2023, Walking with Jesus. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, and we're continuing in the book of Colossians. Paul has uh, writing to them, even though he had never visited them, never talked uh, never spent any time in their presence, didn't know most of them, but he then was writing this letter because he knew there was a church there and he wanted to encourage them. He, he knew that they were facing false teachers who were in their midst, promoting all sorts of doctrines that are contrary to the word of God. And I want us to look at two verses today as he really starts to speak to the issue of the of what they were facing and he comes about it in a very positive way and you're going to go Pastor Tim this is only two verses and I, I'm going to tell you I could keep you long after 12 with these two verses but I won't I only keep you no anyway <clears throat> Listen to these verses, verses 6 and 7 of Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Very short, succinct statements. But it sets the groundwork for all the arguments that he is going to make. Because the focus of the false teachers was, don't look at Jesus. And the focus of Paul's message is, look at Jesus. So we're going to look at Jesus this morning. What does it mean to walk with Jesus? Because that's the command that is made in this passage. Walk in him. So we want to break this passage down because there's a lot of uh, juicy stuff here. Okay. So let's, let's take a look. And he says, first of all, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk him in him. And the first one word we want to look at is the idea of receiving. And this of course was done by faith and the word receive is a pretty common word that the Greeks used in the New Testament. And, but this is a heightened form. And as we've talked about it before, the Greeks love to build compound words to express depth or breadth or something. And here it talks about uh, receiving, but it's the idea of receiving to yourself, bringing it to yourself. And I couldn't help but think about marriage ceremonies. Because we talk about in the marriage ceremony, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? In all the weddings I've ever done, I've never had anybody go, nope. <laughs> or... Let me think on that one. I'll give it back to you. Okay? <laughs> he says, 
as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So what does it mean when we receive Christ Jesus the Lord? Well, I want you to stay here because we're going to go here. I'm going to make reference to other passages. First one is found in 1 Corinthians 15. And if you remember, Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, and he's about to talk about the resurrection in the rest of the chapter. But at the very beginning of that chapter, he talked about the nature of the gospel. And he said, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you have received. What was that gospel? Well, he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. And we said that there's a beautiful picture here that Paul has painted. And he says the gospel is in two parts. Here he says that Christ died for our sins. We could spend a long time on that. But the idea is it was our sins and God's love that brought Jesus to the cross. And he died for our sins on the cross. And then Paul says, in accordance with scripture. Just, and you could go back and we could now spend the whole time reading the Old Testament, looking at all the prophecies, talking about the coming deliverer, but we won't. And then he says, and to prove that he died, he says, and he was buried. That's what you do with a dead person. And he says, the second part, and that he was raised on the third day. And he says, also, in accordance with scriptures. And then, the proof that he rose is he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve, and then to more than five hundred. Okay? Paul comes along, he says, this is what you've received. This is the gospel that you have received. Just as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. So I want to look at these three words that you use to describe so great a salvation in a Savior, Jesus Christ. First of all, he's identified as Christ. We know that the word Christ means anointed one, one who is set apart. Now, we're going to talk about this for a moment. I just want to say something to preface this, and that is, I don't believe that a person needs to know the depth of what I'm about to share in order to be saved. Because even a little child can come to Christ. That's what he says. And they may not have the full understanding of who Christ is. But I love that this same pool that may be awaiting at one end, at the other end is deep enough for a dive. And we're going to dive a little bit. Okay? He says, first of all, he's talking about Christ, the anointed one. And how was he anointed? In the scripture, it tells us that he was anointed as a prophet and a priest and a king. He was set apart by God for us very, as a very special individual. A prophet is a foreteller. A, 
more than a foreteller. He's a foreteller. He's a spokesman for God. In John 1, 18, it says, No one has seen God, only, only the Son who is at the Father's side has made him known. A fourth teller. You want to know what Jesus, what God the Father looks like? That's what Thomas asked in the upper room. Show us the Father, we'll be satisfied. He goes, haven't you seen me? I'm a foreteller, I'm a prophet. He says, and then the priest, he has been set aside not only as a priest, but as the priest. We could go into a whole study about Melchizedek and priest of the high, high king and God. But in 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to his young son of faith. He says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Interestingly enough, this one who is set aside to be the priest is also the sacrifice. But let's press on. Christ is the anointed one, which means he was also the king. In Psalm 110, the psalmist David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. And that verse is quoted over and over again in the New Testament. And we know that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the promise that the throne would never depart from David. And he was the anointed king. And one day he's going to come as king of kings, lord of lords. And there's not going to be anybody who's going to doubt that. So Paul's writing here to the church who hasn't ever met Paul. And he goes, just as you have received Christ, this anointed one, this set-apart one, walk in him. But he's not done. He says, and Jesus, Christ Jesus. And we know that in Matthew 1, we're given the explanation as to what Jesus' name means. It means Savior. And so Paul is writing and he says, this anointed one, is also your Savior. If you didn't enter in by faith, if you've already received him, if you received this gospel, and we're talking about Jesus Christ, you're talking about an anointed one who is also the Savior. But he's not done. He says, just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. That may not mean a whole lot to you, means a whole lot to me because I was raised and I don't know if it was the teaching I received or only those things that I heard. You know how sometimes you only hear stuff and you don't, it may not have been what somebody else was sharing, but it's what you heard. When I was growing up, I heard that 
You needed to accept Jesus as your Savior. And then later on, you needed to dedicate your life to him. And those were two separate things growing up. In fact, I remember going to, to camp, and while many of the kids at camp, the Christian camp, were there, were, were believers, not all of them were, but most of them were, the principal emphasis of the camp was, we want you to dedicate your life to follow Christ. And it, it doesn't sound bad, but I think it misses the point of what Paul is saying. Just as you have received the anointed one, Christ, and Jesus, the Savior, you also received him as Lord. And that means master. That means a person who gives direction to your life. The idea of later on committing your life to Christ missed the point that that was wrapped up in salvation. The outcome of the teaching that I heard when I was younger was that you would have Christians who if you told them, what well, you need to dedicate your life and follow Christ, they would say, I'm already going to heaven. Someone told me I needed to get saved. I got saved. I put my trust in Jesus. I'm done. It was almost like a secure pass that you just tucked in your back pocket and didn't pay any attention until you needed it. And seeing as how you're not dead yet, you don't need it. When you die, you pull it out, you get, I got free pass to heaven. And the problem is, they didn't get the idea of what the nature of sin was. Sin was rebellion. Sin was living your life the way that you wanted to live it and disregarding God's authority and right to, to rule and reign in your life. And so when they confessed their sin, they said, yes, and Jesus Christ forgave me my sin. Now I've got this past in my back, Papa. I can go and live my life however I want. Well, no, we're going to talk to you now about dedication. And you go, I really don't have any need for that kind of super spirituality. But Paul wouldn't endorse that kind of teaching at all. He said, just as you have received Christ, the anointed one, and Jesus, the Savior, you also received the Lord. And he is the master of your life. You now take directions from him. Which only makes sense because if you lived your life your way and that was the nature of sin, disregarding who God is, it only makes sense that if you're repenting of that, you would turn over the rule and reign your life to someone else. Who else? The anointed Savior now becomes Lord. So like I said, this this starts out, and that's the premise. That's the premise for the, these two verses. Just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, now I want you to walk in him. So it brings up a question. Do you know Jesus Christ? As Lord, 
Have you seen him as the anointed one of God? Have you seen him as your savior? And have you seen him as your Lord? Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church at Corinth, at, at, at Colossae, is saying, I'm assuming that you have. Just as you have received him in this way, now, this is what I want you to do. And so we come to the command. What has God done in your life? <laughs> He's entered in your life. He's provided salvation. He's become your Lord. And there's a whole new relation, a new, new uh, creature, Paul says in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He says, just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walk in him. This is a command. In these two verses, this is the only one. My command, as Paul says to you, church at Colossae, and by application to us, Walk in him. Well, if we're going to be in him, we're going to have to recognize, again, belabor the point, he's the anointed one, he's the savior, he is my master, and I'm going to walk now in him. You ever gone for a walk with somebody? I've got, some, I've got a friend, Lydia, she used to attend here too. She goes hiking all over the place. She takes great pictures of the Northwest. And she has said on more than one occasion, I take pictures because I know not everybody out is, is going to be out here and see all these things. But I'm out here and I'm seeing and I'm taking pictures so that you can see them. But I was thinking about going on walks with people. Sometimes you go with a person. And they're driven. We're going to get there. We're going to get there now. And you better not fall behind because of the pace. We're going to get there. Right? And pretty soon you're going, <gasps> and they're going streaking on down. And they turn around. And what do they say? Oh, we'll wait for you. No. Catch up! Come on, catch up! But they aren't the only ones. There are some who, being more moderate in your walking, you would find no problem with them keeping up with you, but they're falling behind too. Not behind the leaders, they're, they're gone up and around the corner. But they're falling behind you, why? They've literally stopped to smell the roses. They're looking at every little thing. There's a rock. It's an interesting rock. Look at the colors in that rock. We're walking. We're walking. So when we describe the walking with Jesus...
You go, well, what kind of walk does he walk? Well, we see lots of things about how he walks in Scripture. In fact, Paul already prayed about this in Colossians, the first chapter. Remember with the prayer? And he says, uh, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so you can walk in a worthy manner in the Lord. Remember that prayer back in Colossians, the first chapter? And then he gives four qualities. I want you to bear fruit as you walk. I want you to increase in your knowledge of God. I want you to be drawing on his strength and his power, his might. And then I want you to be thankful. He says, that's the kind of walk commensurate with the person of Jesus Christ. I tell you this. The Lord isn't going to leave us behind. He's going to walk with us. And even though the command is to walk with him, we can be assured that he's not going to leave us behind on the trail. Sometimes we walk off the path, don't we? <laughs> but you know what? We have the story of the shepherd who was missing the sheep. What did he do? He went off the path and found that sheep and brought it back. But I like the fact, too, that he says, let's walk. Glad he didn't say run. Let's walk. I tell you, we can get into enough trouble walking, can't we? We don't need to be running ahead of the Lord or running off in some odd direction. Whew. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. That's the command to us. And if you say, well, I'm not really sure what this walk is all about. There's plenty of times that this word is used in the New Testament. It says we're to walk in faith, we're to walk in love, we're to walk in light, we're to walk in the spirit, we're supposed to walk in wisdom, we're supposed to walk in truth. Not once did it say, other than a passage where it says, if you're going to compete in the games, run in the race. But most of the time it's just walk. So the question is then, if we're commanded to walk, what is God doing in our life during this walk? What is he investing in us? Because the nice thing about walking, I don't know about you, is a lot of times there's talking. You know, whether it's pointing out the sights and what's going on around, or just being able to carry on a conversation. So the question is, while we're walking with the Lord, what is he up to? What is he doing and investing in our lives? And Apostle Paul talks about that. He says, so walk in him, rooted and build up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, 
And I'm going to stop there because what he does in this section is he gives us a couple words. And I want to point out the significance of these words because, as I said, they are so good. The first one is that you might be rooted and the in him applies to that as well as the build up in him. Rooted in him. Any gardeners here? I know we have some gardeners here. Okay, so the pastor is up for correction if I misspeak, okay? Does anybody know what a rhizome is? Okay, a few. It's sort of a stem that turns into a root ball that's sometimes shallow, sometimes deep. Um, but it's not like a regular root in the sense that there, it draws nutrients into this rhizome and it stores up um, those good things that are found in the soil. Okay? And the good thing about it is that if hard times come, it's able then to sustain itself I was reading this, and so I say borrows from somebody else's information. He says, uh, plants with rhizomes, also known as rootstocks, not to be confused with the rootstock in grafting, refers to the lower part of the trunk or stem. It can be a blessing or a cursing, curse in the sense that they're found in weeds sometimes, and that keeps them going even when you don't want them to keep going. But in, in growing the things that you want, in desirable plants, they have often vigorous growers forming a thick mat, which means less weeds. But also, there are some that are grown with edible rhizomes, including potatoes and ginger and turmeric. And they act as a type of protective mechanism. They help perennial plants survive in an inverse environment, conditions such as winter cold and wildfires and being trampled on by foot traffic and livestock, and as well as an aid in propagation. Propagation. And this is the word that Paul uses here. He says, you're rooted in him. Okay. This is so good. Anyway, he says this in the verb is a participle, means the action is, is happening now, but it's in perfect passive condition. And you go, oh, pastor, that was so inspiring. Now that you told me, I, I just, I'm so blessed. What it means in, when it's imperfect, it means something has been done and it's complete and it has lasting consequences. And it says, we are rooted in him. 
it's done here. And then the second part of this is in the passive form. And you go, oh yeah, another inspiring bit there. What it means is he did it. He planted us in him. When we receive Christ Jesus as Lord, the anointed Savior and Lord, he planted us in him as a rhizome, giving us the ability to soak up the nutrients and prosper even during hard times. And if you don't think that that means anything, just go back to the story when Jesus was talking about the different kinds of soil. And he talked about the hard-packed soil with the seed bounced off of it and, and the birds of the air came and swooped in and took the seed. He says, but other was planted in stony soil and it had, because of the stones, no place for the rhizomes to get established. And when hard times came, they couldn't endure and they withered. And God says, but I took care of planting you and I planted you in good soil. And your rhizomes are soaking up in me all the good things to grow and live your spiritual life. Perfect passive participle. You go, Pastor, I'm feeling a little more blessed now that you explain things. But anyway, he, he's not done. He says, Rooted and built up in him. And I like this because the idea is to build upon something else. And we could go into scripture on many locations where it talks about the found, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and then we are lively stones built up for a holy temple unto the Lord, and we're part of that, and God is building those things in us. And guess what? This is also passive. He's doing the work in us. He's shaping us into the storm, into the stones, to be part of this holy dwelling place for the Lord. And the cool idea behind this word is that he's not done with you yet. He's still building. This is ongoing action that he is doing in your life. So Paul says, I want you, just as you were, you received Christ, I want you to walk in him. And in the process, he's going to be pouring this stuff into you. He's going to be building into you. He's going to be nourishing you. But he's not done yet. He says, rooted and built up in him 
and established in the faith just as you were taught. And with this line, Apostle Paul is attacking the false teachers who said Jesus Christ was not enough. Apostle Paul says, oh, yeah, this, this anointed one, this Savior, this Lord, I want you to walk in him. Why? Because he's the one who planted you. He's the one who is building into you. And he is establishing him in the faith. And the word establishing here has the idea of confirming or strengthening. You ever have doubts? Come on now. You ever have doubts about your walk with the Lord? Okay, the rest of you is to keep from lying. Just go ahead, raise your hand, wave it around, yes? Okay. But do you know, it's a heart desire of the Savior that you know that he is working in you to establish you, to strengthen your faith, to confirm and affirm. The word is used in, the, in, in Scripture oftentimes to talk about what God did to affirm the message of Jesus Christ. Listen to this in Hebrews chapter 2. How should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Well, that's what we're talking about. He says, it was declared at first by the Lord. Would that be enough? Should be, right? But he wasn't done. And he says, it was attested to us. And the word attested means, is the same word that we find here. It was confirmed. It was established. It was strengthened to us who heard it. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and made gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You hear what he's saying? He says, I don't want you just to believe. I want you to be affirmed in your belief. I want you to be confirmed in your faith. I want you to be established in your faith. And part of what he has done in order to make that happen is he's put us within the body of Christ so that we can minister to one another just as he describes here, with gifts that are practiced and shared with one another. One of the reasons we're not to forsake assembling one another is so we can encourage one another. The idea is linked right here to being strengthened in the faith. But I told you I'd try and not keep you too late. So we have one more word. And he says, abounding in thanksgiving. And if you look at my notes here, it says, what is your response? Because finally, in this passage, besides 
the command to walk with the Lord, we get to do something. The Lord has been doing stuff. He's been planting us. He's been nurturing us. He's been growing us. He's been building in us. He's been strengthening us. All those are in the passive. He's doing it to us. He's doing it to us. And it's on an ongoing basis. And now we get to the last one. And this one's in the present active. In other words, we get to do something. He's not doing it to us. We get to do it. And what does he say? Abounding in thanksgiving. So my question is, knowing what God is doing in us, what is our response? Paul was trying to church, trying to encourage the church at Colossae to say, you don't need to go anywhere else. Look what the what the Lord what the Lord is doing in your heart and in your life. Just keep walking with him and they'll keep dumping into your life. But now he gets to this. And it's interesting because the verb isn't, so then give thanks. That's not the verb. The verb is abounding. I want you to sit back for a moment. I know you're not standing up anyway. You're already sitting back. I want you to contemplate for a moment. You're among the disciples, okay? And Jesus has been preaching and teaching to thousands. And now he's, they're hungry. And they go, how are we going to feed all these people? How are we going to do it? I mean, even if a train was to pull up to the station and all the boxcars were filled, 5,000 people is a lot of... And Scripture says, oh, there are 5,000 men plus women and children. So what do we got to feed? Five loaves and two sardines. No, <laughs> two, two small fish. Okay. What did Jesus do? Blessed them, gave them to his disciple, and said, hand them out. And they handed them out. And they handed them out. And scripture says something very specific. It says, in verse 20, chapter 14 of Matthew and they all ate and were satisfied. satisfied in other words they didn't go around and dole out say here's a little piece of bread you know maybe tied you over till you get back to some place where you can get a meal it says sit down and eat hearty you want seconds you want thirds we got it he says, when they all ate and were all satisfied, the disciples took up the 12 baskets 
full of broken pieces left over. And those who were eight were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And the cool part of this story, and the point of why I brought it up, is the leftovers after feeding all these people is referred to as the abundance. And so he says, I want you to be abounding in thanksgiving. So how big is your thanksgiving? Is it a few loaves and fishes? Or is it 12 baskets full after everybody has fed? There should be almost no limit to the amount of thanksgiving that comes from our hearts and our lives. And that's Paul's point. He says, do you see how great a Savior we have? Do you see how great a Lord we have? Look what he's doing. Plug it into you putting into you all these things so that you can grow and mature and be built up and be established and firm in your faith. And what is your response now? Thank you, Lord, for saving. No. We ought to do it with exuberance. Why? We have abundance of thanksgiving. Hebrews 13 says this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city. We seek a city that is to come. It's not my home. I'm just passing through. So through him, let us continually offer up a praise Sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Wow. Wow. Do you know this great Jesus? Do you know this great anointed one? Do you know him as Lord? Have you seen him investing in you? on an ongoing basis as you walk with him? What's your response? Are you thankful? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these short verses that speak to the heart of Paul's message. It isn't just about correcting error. It is in exalting those things that are true and right altogether. Certainly, he points the spotlight right at your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. Heavenly Father, may our hearts and lips be full of praise and thanksgiving to that great Savior. It's in his name we pray.